Welcome to the Scouting Report. I'm your host, Bryant Sterzala, the Special Event Scout. In each episode, it is my goal to sit down with entertainment acts and event professionals from across the industry to learn a little bit about what they do, how we can use them at our next event, and we pick up some fun tips and stories along the way. In today's episode, we sit down with Ryan Oaks, an illusionist from Brooklyn, New York. Alright, here we go. Let's start simple. Let's start with an introduction. Who are you, uh, what is your act, and how could party planners or event professionals contact you? So, uh, my name is Ryan Oaks. I am a professional magician, sleight of hand artist, mentalist, based in New York City. Uh, my work takes me all over the country, although I work predominantly on the eastern seaboard. Uh, in terms of how planners contact me, usually they find me via referrals, nine times out of ten. I get a lot of my work through word of mouth, uh, although, where of course... Where can they find out how to contact Where can they find me? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I've got a website. That's probably the easiest. RyanOaks.com, R-Y-A-N-O-A-K-E-S.com. And uh, there's a phone number there, 212-699-0700, or you can shoot me an email. All right, awesome. So I have worked with you uh, at two events, and both times you acted as a strolling magician. What do you think is the best setup or type of event uh, for a strolling magician? Okay, so um, there's a lot of different ways a magician can work an event. Um, you know, the type of work you're referring to, strolling, often referred to as walk around, mingling. Uh, it's where you would approach a small group of people at a time, uh, politely interrupt them, and then do a small set of material. That could be anywhere from a couple quick tricks to five, ten minutes. Uh, when I work, I like to get at least two, three, four, maybe ten people at a time, depending on if you're working for an entire table and you're mingling between tables. Um, as far as the best type of event, it's hard to say. Every event really is different. Um, there are events where mingling tends to be very, very effective. Uh, a couple examples of that would be uh, a corporate reception for clients of a company. The clients don't know each other at all. The only common thread would be their, uh, the person who, who invited them to the event. So in a case like that, someone like me um, mingling through the group and pulling people together and giving them a common experience usually lends itself to people networking and meeting each other and feeling a little more uh, comfortable in the environment. It's also really effective if you have an event with uh, spouses. So it's a corporate event where uh, employees are bringing their spouses. Spouses obviously are, you know, don't know as many people as the employees themselves. Oftentimes they're rolling their eyes and even having to attend their spouse's function. And uh, again, having someone like me there to kind of break the ice, get people mingling, get them talking about something uh, tends to really be effective. So, you know, in terms of the size, I've worked, you know, close-up mingling events for 20 to 30 people where I come in, you know, wham, bam, uh, whiz, amazing, you know, do like half an hour, an hour of a cocktail hour or uh, a full gala event where, you know, maybe 500 people 
standing for a cocktail reception and then you know sitting for dinner and I could work the entire night mingling through and approaching small groups during the cocktails and then uh, systematically going through and getting to the tables during a dinner. Obviously, there's a sort of a nuanced approach when you're doing things like that because you don't want to be disruptive during meals or when there's speeches or uh, waiters taking orders. I mean, I really have to be aware of when I'm working, where I'm working, finding the right tables. Uh, I usually try to start on the fringes, the people who think they got the bad tables <laughs> as opposed to the tables right up front by the, by the, announcing, uh, by the announcers of the speeches. Um, and then work inward. But again, you know, I got to kind of work with the program. I always get a timeline from the event planner. So I want to stop there and kind of talk about. Yeah, let me know if I'm, I'm oh, you know, straying off too much. Okay. Does that give you confidence, kind of like all of a sudden, like you kind of start to work your way in, or the least distracted to most distracted? So you're kind of like getting more perfect as you work your way in. Like I guess. Describe a little bit of flow of like doing that, like the table. Tell me a sort of like, I guess how you approach it. You start on the outside, and after like, I guess you kind of pick up like what trips work, what's working for the people, and then like work your way in. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, a large part of my job is reading an audience, and you know it seems fairly binary when you when you pitch it. Oh, just you know go into the room and start performing for people up close. Well, it's. It's a little more nuanced than that because, first of all, I got to find the right people, meaning uh, the right people at the right time. More specifically, I mean, you got to make sure you don't approach a small group of people right in the middle of, you know, some guy finishing up a, a funny anecdote. I mean, you know, there's ways of reading people so that you know you're not walking into the middle of a of a of a punchline or uh, you know walking into uh, a business deal. I mean, a lot of times I work for corporate clients, and you can just tell by body language, uh, gestures. Uh, um, and, and, and facial expressions, whether someone's in the middle of a business deal, and you, you know, you you butt in, hey, can, can I show you something cool? And they're like, absolutely not. This is <laughs> this is I'm about to seal my deal. I've been working on this deal for a year. How did you learn to read body? So uh, reading body language, I mean, uh, it comes with the territory for what I do. I mean, a lot of the modus operandi of, of how we accomplish the things we do uh, relies on understanding body language, controlling body language. Um, you know, when I say controlling body language, you know, little things like if I'm showing you a, an effect in my hands and then I, uh, I, look, I, I look up to make eye contact with you, 99% of the time you're going to look up as well to meet eyes with me and, and acknowledge my gesture which means I then have a split second to do a little bit of sleight of hand or, or something sneaky when I know you're not looking at my hands there's a good example of you know controlling body language uh, another example of controlling body language would be uh, you know telling a joke you know a lot of times if I'm telling a joke in the midst of a performance or an effect it's uh, in in not only is it a planned joke, nine times out of ten a scripted joke, but it's, it's also timed so that uh, there's a tension release amongst the group at a specific moment. So, you know, it, I gave the example of, of controlling your eye movement by looking up. Well, that doesn't work if you have a group of ten people. Not everyone's going to look up and look at your eyes at the same time. However, if you make a joke, everybody for a split second is going to laugh. They're going to relax their, their body language and perhaps look at each other to, you know, acknowledge the joke or look at me. And that's when I then have controlled the direction or the attention of the entire group for the moment that I need.
have you ever done any sales training? Because it sounds like it's funny when you talk about this. It sounds like you're describing just the person of selling. Like you read body language, you take, you use humor to capture the attention of the group, and you know like when you could push or hold back. So right. Have you ever studied sales? Have you ever thought about sales? I have never thought about sales. Um, I do realize that a lot of the techniques that I employ in my work are absolutely techniques that salespeople like uh, and, and employ in their own business dealings. I mean, it's like, you know... So I, you think it would be beneficial for sales professionals to look into a little bit of magic? Yeah, absolutely. I think anyone has, has, has uh, you know, benefits of... Uh, I think anyone would benefit from knowledge of, of body language uh, perception. I was a psychology major in college and uh, you know, there was a point when I was in college I actually thought I was going to end up uh, you know, practicing psychology in some respects. When I got out of college I actually thought I was going to go into advertising um, and, and it was classes like you know, body language and perception and human behavior that really grabbed me and, and, and made me think not only about how those uh, how those sort of innate human reactions can be manipulated or influenced with advertising, but also in magic. I'm going off my own script. We'll save this up for the second part. I'm going to get back to being a little bit more. So uh, let's go. Yeah, you got Yeah, here we go. Hit me. Uh, So what is the ideal time for you? Like how an hour, a half hour, an hour? Like what would be the perfect set for you at the moment? So, you know, not to... Not to dodge your question, but there's really no perfect scenario. There's no perfect time. You know, I, I, what I. What is your ideal time? Would you like to perform for a half hour, forty-five minutes, an hour, hour and a half? You yourself. I, I want to perform for as much time as I'm allowed. Sorry, I want to perform for as much time that enables me to to get to everybody. Uh, just the other day, I got uh, asked to perform for a cocktail reception for four hundred people. Uh, for an hour and the client it was a corporate client they said you know they have an hour cocktail reception then there's a few speeches and then past hors d'oeuvres and awards and then they're going to have another two hours of um, cocktail reception and she said look I'd hate to have you have to stick around and listen to the speeches you know you should just do the first hour and then leave and and my reply was I'd rather stay because in an hour I'm just not going to make enough of a dent on that crowd to even perhaps warrant having me. Sure, I'll, I'll make a couple scenes and you know there'll be some, some hooping and hollering and, and bursts of applause in that hour, but I'm not going to get to the percentage that I'd like to get to of that audience in an hour. So by sticking around, doing the extra two hours following the awards, I'm going to make a much better impression and net-net, they're going to feel like their money was better spent because they actually had entertainment for a larger amount of people and I'm going to feel like I, I did a better job. I'm going to feel like a better performer. So, this is probably going to be a tough question to answer. I kind of so I look at events on the logistical side of stuff. So, I almost see it like as a chess match, as a chess board. And for me, what you describe and it's just like how I would sell you and how I would love to use you personally is an icebreaker. Like, I see you as like for a cocktail hour for that first hour of a small intimate crowd bringing people together is that like I mean do you think that is like yeah. the best use absolutely absolutely the beginning of the event is always is the best that's when people are settling in they're trying to fit in if you will you know again it depends on the group it depends on if it's a group that all knows each other it depends on if it's a group that uh, doesn't know each other at all um, 
you know, I, I did a um, a big 80th birthday recently. It was a big, splashy 80th birthday that had about you know 150 people, and uh, they wanted me at the start of the cocktail hour. And I had actually advised them against the beginning of the cocktail hour because of what I'm about to explain. But what ended up happening was in an event like that where everybody knows each other and everybody is perhaps even flying in to see this friend who's turning 80 and they don't see each other very often, the last thing they want to do is walk into an event and have to be quiet and watch me perform. No, they want to say hi to Frank they haven't seen in 10 years. They want to go hug their old friend. They want to catch up. How are the kids? How are the grandkids? Whatever. So to have me start at the beginning was, was not appropriate. Uh, they needed a good half hour to settle in, say their hellos, do their hugs, get a drink, and then they can feel comfortable and enjoy the ambiance and the entertainment at the party. So just to clarify, in that situation, you were performing like a show on stage? In front no, of I, was, I was mingling. I was strolling. Yeah, I was strolling at that event. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a, an hour and a half cocktail. Everybody knows each other. You're yeah, exactly. You, you don't need the icebreaker. Yeah. I have a different job there. Exactly. Think, so my next question was, what mistakes do event professionals make? And it would be using you as an icebreaker when it's not appropriate to be an icebreaker. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 In that situation, I should have been viewed as an added surprise. You know? The first surprise being seeing all these old friends. You walk into this party. Oh, it's beautiful. Great. I've settled in. I've had a drink or two. Whoa. They got a magician here? Just when I thought I'd like seen it all here at the party, now you're rolling out, you know, phase two of this event? You raise mistakes. The energy is already good because it's like this is close knit connection. Exactly. But then all of a sudden, then exactly. it's out of the ordinary. Right. You know? There's no need to, to, to come out guns blazing in the beginning of an event. In, in a situation like that where the dynamic is, is very different than a, a corporate event where people walk in and don't know each other and are looking for something to distract themselves. They're not standing in the corner holding a drink, saying nothing. So now it's funny. I didn't know how I wanted to transition between these two, but I think this works out perfect. Is I worked an event with you uh, a week ago that you were both the strolling magician at the cocktail hour, plus you performed on stage, and then you did a little mingling afterward, right? Yeah. Um, do you like being both acts, or like I guess is your but? Do you like doing both of there? Do you like being both your opening act and the main act? Depends on the event. Um, let me give a couple of different examples of when I like it and when I don't like it. Um, in certain situations, doing close-up and mingling work prior to my stage show can be a real icebreaker for me. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, I don't... 99% of the time I work, people are being presented my show. They haven't bought tickets to my show. They don't know what they're about to be subject to, um, which is a completely different type of audience. If, you, if you've purchased tickets to a show, you know what you're getting into, you're excited about it, and you've not only had to spend money on it, right, versus you're a guest at a party and the host has hired me and you have no idea what's coming, right? Now, maybe you've been told, maybe you haven't. Maybe there's a program on your chair that has a, a menu and a, and a bio on me. Maybe you've just heard there's a magic show, right? If you hear magic show, Lord knows what you're thinking is going to come on stage, right? I think the, the, just the, the simple phrase, a magic show, is one of the most misconstrued 
you know, explanations of, of what I do and lends itself to all kinds of images that is not what I do at all. So in those cases, you know, let's just take a corporate event, you know, like a, like a sales meeting, right? You've just finished a long day of meetings. You probably just want to go up to your room and put your feet up in the hotel and watch some TV. Instead, you have to sit through dinner. And now you've heard there's a show, a magic show. You're like, oh, man, like, I really just want to go to sleep. Okay, what's this magic show going to be about? Oh, there's the guy in the corner doing stuff for my colleagues. Oh, wow, this is cool. Let me check it out. Let me get a, you know, a, a close view. So in those situations, not only is it an icebreaker for them, it's an icebreaker for me. Because I get a chance to present who I am and potentially, you know, win some friends, make some allies prior to even going on stage. And you get to scope the audience. Not even scope the audience. I mean, yeah, sure, I get a feel of, you know, how loose they are. Do they all know each other? Are they ready to have fun? Or am I getting the vibe that they just really don't even want to be at this dinner? They want to go back to their hotel room? You know, those kind of things. It, it, yeah, it definitely helps to have a, a, something of a vibe. You know, is this, like I said, is this a fun group? Is this a group that knows each other? Um, are they tired? You know, sometimes I perform for international groups, and you can just tell. Like, they, they flew in the night before. They're all jet-lagged, and by 6 o'clock at night, they're, they're just they're done. Okay, know? now, same setup where you have an event that's a cocktail hour, and they have a performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you like having, I would be, like, a warm-up? Like, you know, like Aerosmith would have a warm-up band. Like, do you like having somebody who kind of mingles and gets people excited with the idea of magic, and they're into it, and then you come on? Do you like that? I wouldn't be opposed to that. I don't think that happens that often for me. Yeah. Um, Does it happen in the industry? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's happened. I've done a few events where I've hired people to perform during the cocktail hour, and then they come in and do a show. With who? Yeah, Paul's a good buddy of mine. Have you ever worked events together? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, give me a story about that. I guess, no, don't. Get out of here, sorry. I'm making this up as I go. Paul's a great guy. So I guess now, as a stage magician, what is the best type of audience? Best type of audience? Um, sugar and a little bit of soy sauce. Yep. Sure. Best type of audience? Yeah. For a stage show? Yep. I mean, the short answer would be a, the best kind of audience is an audience that's excited about the show that's about to happen. You well, know? I guess, all right, more specifically, like, is there a profession like sales, finance, marketing, and is there a demographic, you know, age, men versus women, like, what, like, if you're... Target audience would be what kind of profession? I, I, yeah, there isn't. There isn't. There really isn't. No, because again, how do you, you play know, to sales? How do you play to salespeople? Yeah, do you think that it's successful when you're brought into like a sales conference? Because I said what we talked about before, like you are like an expert at body language and selling right. an illusion in front of somebody's face with right. an expert right. of sales. Yeah. So, okay, like, so do so, you think that, like, I mean, to me, it makes sense. It's just like, do you find that like people are more engaged as like sales is demographic compared to like finance or marketing? Right. Where does sales kind of as like you know general demographic fit in terms of audience you hope to have? I, I think it's less a question of what I hope to have in the audience because let's be honest, I don't really have much control over the audience that I'm so giving. You have no dream audience. I mean, you have dream. What's your dream audience? <laughs> dream <laughs> audience. Um, it is sales professional from the age of the. No, a dream audience is. <laughs> yeah, no, a dream audience is a crowd that is, uh, like I said, energized, interested in, in seeing entertainment, excited to be at an event. They have good seats. The uh, the setting of the room is appropriate for what I do. I have a good How stage. Appro- like, where does 
the venue and stage you think rank of how, like, how you fit? How important is the venue for your act? The venue is important in as much as it's appropriate for the event itself. You know, I mean, I've done events where you've got, you know, too many tables packed into a room and now you've got people trying to serve drinks and maybe clear a dish during my show and, you know, the waiters can hardly navigate the tables and now you've got people trying to, you know, duck their heads around so they can see me on stage. Um, and then I've done events where it's an absolutely dream situation, you know? Um, but no, back to your question about, like, a dream audience, like, I think it's less of a question of, like, what I want to get as an audience because, again, I don't have much control over the what clients contact me. There are certain clients that I, I do proactively reach out to and, and, and try to uh, convert into clients, but I have less control over who the audience is, but I have more control over how I present my material to those audiences. So I try to have at least a good understanding of who's going to be in the audience. Uh, the other night when you saw me perform for that group, I had gone in thinking it was an audience of predominantly um, stockbrokers. It turns out it was an audience of predominantly programmers. And had I known that, I probably would have done a couple different routines. The routine that I think got the best response, given the client's reaction uh, email to me after the event, was they all love this Rubik's Cube thing I did. Because it's all numbers-based. It's numbers-based, it's mathematic-based, it's algorithm-based, and a bunch of programmers would, would really you know, lap that up versus a salesperson group. Um, salespeople after my show, the first thing they say to me is not that they like the Rubik's cube. They say, man, you remembered everybody's name in the audience during the show. How'd you do that? And like, to me, that's not even a trick. That's just, that's just me paying attention to the people I meet during the show. But that's the kind of thing that's important to salespeople, you know? It's funny that you say that. So I have a follow-up I read a book that was called Moonwalking with Einstein. Yeah. And it was it's about the art of memory yep. and remembering people's names. And it was like you make associations and it talks about like a memory palace. Do you employ any of those tricks to remember somebody's name? I do not employ any of those tricks on a, on a, on a regular basis. I think I do some of them subconsciously, subconsciously on my own. I, don't, I haven't studied any kind of methodology to, you know. Do you, you make know. associations with names? I don't make associations with names, but I make a special point to repeat names. I think for me, the key in remembering a name is repeating it immediately after you learn it. And I think a lot of times in our social life, you get someone's name and you just kind of, you know, oh, okay, okay. And, and you just try to internalize it. Versus when I perform, I say, okay, great, what's your name, Brian? Okay, Brian, what I want you to do is come over here. And I, almost immediately I repeat the name and then make another point of saying it again for two reasons. One, it's, it's, it's oftentimes a... Uh, a technique to control uh, attention you know everybody perks up when they hear their own name everybody's favorite word is their own name okay if I say your name you're absolutely going to look at me and pay attention and at times not only do I want to want your attention during a trick but at times I need to misdirect your attention so if I'm telling you one thing and all of a sudden I direct you with something I say your name I I have you know controlled your attention for a moment But that was a great book, by the way. Yeah, it's a cool book. Uh, so, here's probably a question you won't want to admit. Uh, is there a point in your show where it was the wrong venue, whatever have it, where just like the audience just didn't buy in? Is there a certain cutoff point that when you know you haven't got them yet, you're not going to get them? I think, well, let me say this. I think there's some performers 
who would say, if you don't grab them by the first minute, you're never going to get them. I would disagree with that. I would say, if you don't have them by the end of the first trick, maybe the second trick, depending on how long these routines are, you're not going to win them over. You know, it's funny because that's the question, my favorite question that I ask all my friends that are teachers. And it's like, when do you know that you have a class by what date? Or if you don't, you won't control right. them. And there's this Thanksgiving, which is kind of like the end of the second act. It's like, right. you come in here, you've had your first month, everybody's a little wild up. And you had your second month where it's like, all right, you know the deal. So it's either you're buying into this or you aren't. But if right. you don't care after two false tricks, it's kind of like... right. You yeah. might catch our attention here or there, but... Yeah, exactly. I mean, people only have so much attention span these days. I mean, we live in a world that, you know, everyone's attention span is shrinking by the day, especially teenagers and, and you know, younger generations. So, you know, certainly first impressions are everything. You know, you got to come out guns blazing and, and, and hit them hard. Um, I don't do my strongest material first intentionally, you know. you gotta, you got to build the show. But that said, it's got to be just enough to intrigue them and say, "Okay, I'll give this guy another ten minutes. I'll give, you know, I'll, I'll see where this goes." It's a good story that has an arc. Exactly, exactly. There is a you know, exactly. You can't you can't hit home run and then then you know. Shoot for the hit for the cycle, not for the home run. So now, follow up on that question: How do you keep your composure on stage if you know that like I'm not winning this crowd? Like, how do you just keep going at like, I came in, I'll do this, and I'm going to just do it. Like, how do you keep it? Your- well, two things. One is just the sheer fact you got to be a professional and, and maintain composure, deliver. Oh, you got to be professional, but, like, I mean, I can't imagine that's easy sometimes. No, it's not easy. I didn't say it was easy. <laughs> sometimes it's very difficult and demoralizing. But the point is, as a professional, you have been hired to deliver a product. That product is a show. And, you know, regardless of what the situation is, you got to deliver the most professional, high-energy, you know, bang-em-up show you can. Now, you know, I've also learned, I'll say this too, I have learned that sometimes an audience that you feel is not with you is actually with you. I remember the first time I did this, uh, that I learned that, was a country club. I was, it was probably eight, nine years ago, and I did a country club show it catered to a very older group, let's just say that. And I would say everyone in the room was between, you know, 70 and 80. And so I go in there, I do my show, and I'm telling you, people hardly clapped between routines. And I'm just thinking, oh my God, this is just killing me. Like, they are totally not into this. No one was leaving, but I mean, you know, there was one guy who fell asleep in the back of the room, and, you know, I think that just, again, these are older folks and they got fell asleep and there's other people just were not clapping at all well lo and behold I finished the show you know did my full hour show finished and was just you know I had an assistant there with me and I was saying to her I was like man that just that was brutal these people just they, they're not into it all sure enough I had a crowd of people who came back stage afterwards to talk to me and get my business card and I, I then sort of sheepishly came out front where I was trying to just kind of disappear I came out front to, the, to meet people in the lobby, and I was absolutely mobbed by people who want to talk to me and, and thank me, and I was absolutely overwhelmed. And I think the reason was they were older people. They were tired. They didn't have the energy to clap every time the trick was over. Maybe I was asking them to clap too many times, whether it was, you know, applaud for this guy coming on stage or, uh, you know, applaud for this person who just went back to their seat and it helped me. Um, okay, it's all 
But I, I was mis I was totally misaligned. I, I, I was misaligned. No, you know, it's like in the same regard, it's just like you're actually even better because like you held it together and you proved that you're not just like, you know, it's just like, you know, I'm going to go the distance no matter what. And I feel like then people have a better result too because it was, you know, like you right. overcame the obstacle of the crowd and the professional and it wasn't just about getting a Yeah, sure. Uh, so how do you think, sorry, this is going to continue. Yeah. How do you think your experience on stage is similar to that of a magician, a musician, or other performers? I mean, there's certainly a common thread between all performers: how they feel on stage, how they connect as an artist with their audiences, how they use the space, whether it be a small platform in the corner of a ballroom at a hotel or a full professional stage with, you know, lights and curtains and audio and, you know, my show brings me to all kinds of venues. So sometimes I'm, like I said, on a, you know, eight by eight riser in a, in a ballroom and other times I have the luxury of a gorgeous theater with, you know, velvet covered seats and, and beautiful staging. The experience from a performer's point of view, though, I mean, it I, obviously depends on your your medium. Um, you know, I, I present a very interactive form of entertainment, meaning it's not a performer who's just playing a song. It's not a dancer who's just doing a dance that's choreographed to music. I absolutely depend on an audience. I need them to interact with me. I need them to work with me it's not a passive show it's not a show you can just sit and watch with your arms closed uh, arms crossed and, and not be part of the show um, and for me that's how I prefer it I, I want to interact with my audiences I really enjoy the interactivity and to be honest I think that's a lot of the reason people uh, hire me because they're not looking for a show that you know is just an act on stage that uh, uh, you know they're going to they're going to feel detached from uh, people are hiring me because they want their crowd to interact with each other. You know, I, I break the fourth wall. That's what, you know, it's sort of what it's called in theater. I mean, you, you know, I'm, I'm constantly stepping into the audience, getting people up on stage. Everything I do is interactive. So, net net, at the end of the night, you you not only entertain your audience, but you, you hopefully have created some experiences amongst them. Oh, well, you know, George was on stage. Remember that funny thing he did? Or remember when he came to the audience and he was, you know did that thing with Sally I mean you know th those are the moments that my clients are hoping their audiences are going to take home and not just that they had a good time and sat back and watched a show so we'll end with two things do you have a horror story not naming any specific names or going into details but do you have a horror story that you're willing to share there's gonna be one event where you're just like that I think I was, I was going through the memories there's definitely some horror stories in terms of travel and getting to events of all your 15 years what is one story that's like this oh man you make it sound like it's gotta be a like a Real tragic incident. I will, I, without giving you the whole story, I can tell you another day. My favorite experience in college was the day I broke my best friend's finger so we could get out of taking a test. It doesn't have to be the best moment, it just has to be the moment you remember when I say, What is one horror story that comes to mind? Uh, 
I think I told you the story the other night, but I, you know, one that made me really uncomfortable. And I mean, look, I'll preface by saying I've had some horror stories. Part of my job is to roll with the punches. You know, you go into every event hoping for the best, expecting the worst, and <laughs> you just, you know, you, you play the hand you're dealt. Uh, that said, I'm, you know, I'm usually lucky enough to have good environments and good clients and you know i feel like i have a decent enough knowledge of what i'm getting into to foresee most it's the event world exactly it's the event world anything goes i mean i've had events where the power went out and i had to present my show with you know a guy holding his iphone up with uh you know a flashlight or two or three guys i did an event where they were like on stage and like they were like you get like uplighting from the audience three guys Stood in front of the table, sat, sorry, sat, crouched in front of the tables and projected not only their iPhones, but the centerpiece had a, a beam of light coming from it in the middle of the plants, the, the flowers. Oh, so you were and they were, you were like walking around. No, no, no. I was on stage. It was, well, that's just it. It wasn't a great stage. It was, you know, I think I was poolside at a country club for a, a big corporate event and they pulled. The, the lights out of the flower arrangements on each table and then took their iPhones and projected them up towards me because, you know, the power had gone out and no one could see anything. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it worked enough. It worked, it had to work. You know, we had no other option. Nobody could see anything and it was an older crowd and everyone was sort of, you know. I feel like, in one regard, it's like a major disadvantage because you obviously have to see what's going on but the same thing. You could be a little sloppy because nobody can see you either, right? Yeah, right. Well, yeah, if you can't, if you can't see me, you're certainly not going to appreciate what I'm doing um but i think a better answer to your question though and i think this is the story i told you the other day was uh i did a conference up in canada it was an insurance conference and beautiful stage nice audience probably three four hundred people and uh it was a a day of all kinds of lectures and keynotes and whatnot and the guy who's going on before me talked for almost 45 minutes about losing his wife to cancer and it was uh, obviously a tragic story, a very heartwarming story. And his, his, his lesson from the story was to you know, appreciate your, your work-life balance and uh, to value the time you have with your family and never, never take it for granted. Anyway, I had to go on after this as he left the stage crying and there wasn't a dry eye in the house and... What the MC or the host should have done is said, "Hey, look, let's take ten minutes. Everybody, you know, why don't you, you know, step outside, make a phone call if you have to, go to the bathroom, and then come back. We'll, you know, pick up where we left off." Instead, you know, he the host came out, and I think he pretty much knew <laughs> how awkward it was going to be, but he did not try to facilitate at all, and just immediately said, "All right, well, we're going to try and lighten the mood here now." And here's Ryan Oaks, and I was forced to come out there and do a half an hour set which already was incongruous to the rest of the conference because it was mostly meaty um, heady lectures and I was kind of at the end of the ne- end of the day trying to exactly you know as he said lighten lighten the mood but man I mean I couldn't have asked for a worse setup and I, I felt it was even under- inappropriate I felt literally like it was inappropriate for me to come out and perform and and I was thrown off I was you know I was I, I was a lot of loss for words. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know if I should address what had just happened or uh, ignore it and press on as if I was in the back of the stage and, and didn't hear it. I mean, I, I was. I think I said a quick mention and, and uh, thanked him for sharing his, his story and 
you know, told him I was sorry for his loss and then tried to lighten it up and move forward. But it was awful. It, it was just, you know, it was half an hour that I just absolutely did not want to be on stage. And consequently, I don't think it went that well. I mean, it, how could it go that well? You know, everyone is... I, I felt like everyone in the audience just thought I was a jerk. <laughs> like, how dare you come out here and try to do this show after what that last man said to us? How he opened his heart, and now you just want us to, you know, watch your magic? I mean, give me a break. I felt like I was literally insulting them. But, hey, that's what I was hired to do. Did you have any idea what that guy was going to say? Well, like, no, I mean... When you thought this was a good idea? I, I you know, look, I... I, I couldn't insult the planner's judgment. I think I did afterwards make a, a comment saying, hey, I wish I'd known what I was going to be up against and what the content of his presentation was going to be prior to me going. I would have perhaps directed you differently or tried to steer the the timeline you know, to be a little more accommodating for his story. But, hey, look, you know, the event planners that I work with uh, most of them are very knowledgeable, very experienced. There are certainly times when they have not hired people like myself, and um, there is an opportunity for me to give them my my experience, my my knowledge from my experience. I mean, there's certainly moments where I, I have I wouldn't say butted heads, but definitely tried to steer an event planner in a different direction because um, of what I know works best for for what I do. Uh, actually, a, another great example is the event you saw last week. The event planner, um, you know, typically when I perform my stage show, I do it after dinner. So plates are cleared. Uh, there's no disruption of people wanting to eat their meal. I certainly don't want to disrupt someone's meal. And I don't really want too much disruption of, of servers having to clear plates and serve plates and whatnot. So typically I do my show after dinner. Maybe dessert's been plated. Maybe they're pouring coffee. Uh, but more or less the, the dinner's done. This particular client said they wanted me to do the dinner, do the show during dinner, which I told them was going to be a problem because people would be wanting to eat. They wouldn't want to be turning their chairs in to see me and, and get a better view of the stage. There would be servers everywhere. And she told me that their crowd, because it's a very international group that comes from all over the world once a year, they hardly sit in their seats. So uh, she admitted to me that oftentimes people don't even touch their meal because they're mingling they're balancing from table to table to meet their colleagues and, and, you know, just have drinks. So when I heard this, and she was pretty adamant about the dynamic of the event, I said, okay, let's do it during the meal because that's the only chance we'll have to actually keep people in their seats and, and, do, the, uh, and do the show. Now, in the back of my head, I was still kind of thinking maybe we shouldn't be doing the show at all because people want to talk and they don't want to sit, uh, but ended up, ended up working. So we did the show. And uh, people were eating their meal, and uh, the servers actually were, were pretty brisk and, and getting in and out and not being too disruptive. All right, now, so now we'll end it here on a high note. So you just talked about some of the horror stories. Is there one event that stands out to you? One moment maybe it was early on, maybe when you hit a certain peak or a certain special event. Do you have one favorite event story? Or just is it one that comes to mind when I say just what's one event that you just remember so like, fondly? Well, there are many great stories. Um, I fortunately have many more great stories than I have horror stories. <laughs> um, although the horror stories are obviously more fun to tell. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I have been really fortunate to travel all over the world and do what I love. And 
you know, there have been some very splashy parties with, you know, unbelievable guest lists and other entertainment that you, you know, you just wouldn't even believe you're sharing a stage with. Can you, um, can you tell me, like, what's one person that you're like, holy shit, they're playing weight, you know? Like, what's like, one guest you said that you look up, you're like, oh, man, like, I don't know. Have you ever been starstruck, I guess? Uh, I've definitely been surprised. I remember doing a very high-end Hamptons event years ago. And, you know, as I alluded to earlier, part of my job when I'm mingling and doing walk-around work is to find the right people. And those are people who perhaps are not engaged in conversation or, you know, are, are standing by the bar looking out over the group as, you know, who I should talk to next and those are the people I usually approach. Hey, how you doing? Let me let me pull you into the group here. Let me let me get you mingling with another person. And I remember walking over to a guy who who uh, was kind of standing, doing that exactly. You know, sort of holding his drink, looking out over the group, like you know, where should I go? Who should I talk to? And he was with a couple other people who didn't seem to be talking. And I walk over, uh, grab their attention. He turned towards me, and and, and I hadn't realized before because I had only seen a profile. But he turned towards me, and it was um, LL Cool J. <laughs> I was a big fan of growing up, so uh, yeah, and he was he was super cool, and that was uh, six seven something like that. Yeah, yeah. No, he was he was great. He loved it, and uh, it was a, I I don't usually get nervous performing in front of celebrities because at the end of the day, they're you know they're they're like every other person, you know. Um, if anything, it's only just a little awkward because when I do approach them, they think I'm probably approaching them, hey, you know, can I get a photo or can I get an autograph when, hey, look, I'm really here just to do my job and entertain you. Um, do you find that you have any ego, do you think? Because it's like you're stealing their attention. There used to be this I've had, I'm not going to name names, but I've definitely had one or two experiences where I have performed at a table and there was a celebrity at the table and I was definitely getting the vibe from that celebrity is, hey, dude, I'm the center of attention here. Please be gone. And uh, I've also had the absolute opposite, which is, you know, I come to a table and they think, oh, here's this guy who wants to probably get my autograph or get my get my photo, and I'm going to treat that person exactly like I treat everyone else at the table. And I think they almost feel relieved that the attention's off of them, and now everybody's watching me. And hey, when I go to get into, uh, uh, someone to help me, I'm, I'm turning to the to the the woman's husband, or, or you know, the the celebrity's husband, or you know, someone else other than them, so the, the heat is off them. So it can go both ways. Who knows? You know, I've had celebrities surprise me. But back to your answer, though. So here's the answer. So so so. This is the answer I like to give in terms of like a really great event that felt great for me and was also totally unique. Um, I've done a number of events with the, with the Navy, the U.S. military over the years. I was really lucky to get connected with someone in the U.S. Navy a number of years ago. And since then, I've done an event in, I guess, 10 different U.S. naval bases in different countries, everything from Greece and Italy and Spain and Japan and uh, this same group hired me to do an aircraft carrier. And this was a trip. I can't remember what the exact term they, they had for it, but it was basically like a, a pre-deployment party. So they would basically clear the hangar of all the planes that are typically in the aircraft carrier's hangar and then board everybody on the ship, all their families, all their kids, and they'd go out on like a well, for lack of a better term, a booze cruise, if you will, and, and tour around and uh, have a big party. And then the following day, uh, 
the ship would deploy for I guess a month or two, whatever their deployment was. So it was like a you know a, a farewell party. So uh, I got to do one of these events on a on an aircraft carrier. We uh, we left out of Virginia, and there must have been 800 people in the hangar of this of this carrier. I did a show at one end, looking out over this just you know ginormous airplane hangar, probably the size of you know four or five football fields. And, uh, yeah, it was just a thrill. You know, at one point they had the, the hangar doors open and, you know, the wind is, is bro- blowing through the hangar there. And uh, after my show, there was a... It was really emotional, but like a good emotion. It was really... All these events I do for the Navy are emotional because you really feel like you're... Especially you're with people who are about to leave. It's the last yeah, year. exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, you feel really good that you're, you're doing something for the country and you, you see that all these servicemen and women, you know, really do uh, sacrifice a lot. You know, to go off for months on end and, and not see your family and your loved ones is really tough. Uh, so to be a part of that was is really meaningful, and you know similarly when I travel to these naval bases, you know you meet families that live on these bases, you know far away from their their relatives back in the states, and you know you meet little five year old kids who were born on the naval base. You know, I remember going to Yokosuka, Japan, and meeting little kids who were born in Japan there on the naval base, never even lived in the states. You know, of course the naval bases kind of feel like a little piece of the U.S. You know, they got Starbucks and you know <laughs> RVs and whatnot. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, it, you know, it feels great to be able to, to bring a little bit of American culture over to these naval bases. So, uh, so yeah, aircraft carrier gig was definitely a memorable event and, uh, I would do it again in a heartbeat. 